Expedition 44 here with Matt and Ryan and today we are super excited we are continuing our series on hell and we have one of the best authorities on hell and so Matt can you introduce our guest today? Yeah this is uh, Chris Date. Uh, Chris is an adjunct professor of Bible and Theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. That's where I got both my bachelor's and master's degree from. Um, so uh, he's also the co-editor of the book Rethinking Hell, which came out in 2014 with Cascade and uh, a consuming passion, um, Pickwick 2015. He's a full-time software engineer. Chris uh, believes theology and apologetics are for the average Joe in the pews and not just for pastors, philosophers, PhDs. Um, He's a great guy. I've enjoyed getting to know him uh, a little bit over the past few months since we've been connected. So, uh, Chris, welcome on. We're really excited to have you. Um, Want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm thrilled to hear that you got your degrees at Trinity, where I've recently um, been hired to teach. Um, hopefully, people that are looking for an undergraduate or graduate education um, on the cheap and, you know, with uh, th- that have families and lives and, you know, can't afford to do a brick and mortar institution ki- type of education, hopefully they'll check out trinitysem.edu uh, and see what Trinity is all about. Um, so, like you said, I am a full-time software engineer, but when I became saved about 20 years ago, I quickly became passionate about theology and about apologetics. And um, and so over the years, I have self-taught myself. I've, I've taught myself a lot about uh, biblical studies and theology and apologetics and stuff. And then in uh, 2000, from 2014 to 2017, I earned a bachelor's in religion from Liberty University. And then from 2017 to 2020, completed a master of arts in theology from Fuller Seminary. And I should say, uh, I didn't go to Fuller because they match my ethos that we, you know, we have the same kind of um, liberal leanings. It's quite the opposite. I'm very conservative and I wanted to go somewhere to earn a degree where I wouldn't just be taught things that I already believe and accept. I wanted to be challenged and stretched. Um, and I ended up coming out of that time at Fuller just as convinced of my conservative theology as I already was. Um, and I should also add that Fuller has a bad has a something of an unfair reputation for being um, liberal. The reality is that their faculty and student body are all over the place, all over the spectrum. My Old Testament professors were very liberal, but my New Testament professors were very conservative. Um, just as one example of what I'm talking about, um, the pastoral epistles, Titus and Timothy, are often thought to be the most clearly not genuinely Pauline. And yet my New Testament professor said there's a great case to be made for the genuine Pauline authorship of the pastorals. So it just, Fuller, to put it simply, Fuller is sometimes thought to be too liberal for conservatives, but they're also way too conservative for liberals. (laughs) Um, So they get it from both sides. Anyway, my, my hope is one day to um, transition out of um, software engineering full-time and into full-time teaching. And to that end, I will hope to do a PhD in Old Testament sometime soon. Um, about, uh, uh, I'm married, uh, have been for almost 21 years. I've got four sons ranging in age from almost 20 at my oldest down to seven at my youngest. Um, 
I enjoy powerlifting and I enjoyed playing hockey when I was younger. And I'm looking forward to watching the new Seattle Kraken play in the NHL in the next season of the NHL. Um, and there's a lot more I could say, but hopefully that'll give people uh, an introduction to who I am and, and what I'm about. And then we can, you know, you can feel free to ask me further questions. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. So we kicked off a series on hell here and we kind of in our last episode gave a general overview and some affirmations and things that the three major Christian uh, views of hell believe. So eternal torment, conditional immortality, and Christian universalism. So um, you, Chris, are a conditionalist. Uh, you hold a conditional immortality, annihilation, some people call it. So maybe before we kind of get into what the big three eternal texts, would you mind giving us an overview of the way that you see conditionalism and maybe how you came to believe it? So I have often found that it's helpful before I explain what conditionalism is um, to first make it clear just what the tradition is, the tradition of eternal torment. Um, because when we hear the phrase eternal torment or eternal conscious punishment or whatever, we very often think just about the eternal torment part, but that's really only part of the story. Um, you see, it's not disembodied souls that will suffer forever in hell, according to that traditional view. Um, when people die, if we remain conscious in death, our disembodied souls go to the place of the dead, Hades, the underworld, or whatever, um, and they're either experience the bliss of uh, the presence of, of God or the torment of Hades, whatever. Um, but one day, according to the book of Revelation, and indeed the whole of the Bible, um, Hades will be emptied when the dead are raised bodily, both the saved and the unsaved. So they'll come back to life one day, whether you're a premillennialist or an amillennialist. Um, either way, eventually all humankind will be raised from the dead back to embodied life. Um, and we agree with that as conditionalists, but from that point on is where we disagree because on the because the tradition says that once so raised from the dead, the saved will be made immortal, not just in their souls, but their bodies too will be made immortal and they will live forever. And the reality is that the traditional view of eternal torment says the exact same thing about the lost. So when the lost are raised bodily from the dead, when they come back to physical life, the tradition says that they too will be made bodily immortal and live physically forever, albeit in hell. So you can see that the the gospel, according to the doctrine of eternal torment, is, is really a gospel of real estate. I mean, I, I hate to put it a little crassly, but that's what it comes down to. It's where are you going to spend your eternal life? In fact, that's how evangelists often present it. Um, so the doctrine of eternal torment and, for that matter, the doctrine of universalism are both affirmations of universal resurrected immortality. All humankind will be raised immortal. Um, our view, the view of conditional immortality, um, stands in opposition to that view of immortality. Instead of immortality being indiscriminately given by God to all humankind when they're raised from the dead, we conditionalists believe that only those who meet the condition of being saved through faith in Christ will receive immortality. That's why it's called conditional immortality. So in our view, the yes, the lost will be raised, but they will be raised every bit as mortal as they are now. 
And when they face judgment, they will be found guilty of sin. They will they will fail to be covered by the blood of Christ because they haven't expressed saving faith in him. And they will be sentenced to death. And by death, I'm not using some sort of code language or anything like that, like the tradition has to do. I mean death, period. By which I don't mean the cessation of existence, but I do mean the cessation and ongoing privation of life. So when the dead are raised, the Bible does not teach that they will be, the lost will be made immortal and live forever in hell. It teaches that they will literally be killed. Uh, they will die a second time and remain dead forever. Now, the reason why this view sometimes is called annihilationism is because in uh, if, if you read texts like Matthew 10, 28 in a um, dualistic way that the human soul remains conscious after death, that's only true of the first death, because Jesus says not to fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, rather fear God who can and will destroy both body and soul in Gehenna, in hell. And so what happens when a body dies? Well, it becomes inert, inanimate, inactive, motionless, lifeless. And all of that stuff, Jesus says, will be true of the souls of the wicked um, when they are destroyed in hell as well. So if the soul, if, the, if our very consciousness is slain in the way the body is, rendered inert, inanimate, lifeless, motionless, etc., then we will come to an end altogether. And that's why it's called annihilation. Now, how did I come to this view? Um, I was perfectly happy and remain perfectly happy to believe in the doctrine of eternal torment if I thought that scripture teaches it. I was happy to believe that for the first 10 years of my faith, roughly. I defended it. I, I'm very, uh, very firm Calvinist, uh, uh, a reformed believer, and I think that God is perfectly holy and just and sovereign, and he can and will do whatever is right. And if what scripture reveals that his plan, his his what he deems the appropriate punishment for sin is to be made immortal so they can live forever in hell, so be it. I'm, I'm fine with that and always have been. But what happened was that in 2011, I think it was, I interviewed a guest on a show of mine um, and his name was Edward Fudge. And he had just recently published the third edition of his book, The Fire That Consumes, in which he presents a case for conditional immortality. And in the course of preparing for and conducting that interview, um, I moved from being firmly convinced of eternal torment to being on the fence between that view and conditional immortality. And then in the months that followed that interview in 2011, I dove into as much material as I could to study the topic in further depth. I interviewed believers in eternal torment on my show. I moderated debates. And then eventually toward the end of 2011, I participated in my very first debate, and which was also my first debate on this topic. And as a result of finally putting this view that I was by that point beginning to lean toward to the test and seeing how much better it fared in debate than the doctrine of eternal torment, um, I finally ended up embracing it. And just to be clear, as I wrap up my answer to your question, I did not want to believe this view, and I still don't want to. Um, the, for one thing, the prospect of my loved ones being destroyed finally and forever is every bit as terrifying as the prospect that they might live forever in torment. Um, and, and moreover, I knew that if I changed my mind on this view, I'd become something of a pariah. I would lose friends. I would lose relationships. I would lose ministry opportunities. There'd be jobs that I wouldn't be hired for because I uh, would have changed my mind. And so every, every part of me that was emotion wanted to continue to cling to that doctrine of eternal torment. But very early on in my faith, um, a mentor uh, taught me to 
test everything that I believe and subject everything that I believe to the uh, authoritative word of God, the, the, the Theopneustos, 2 Timothy 3.16, God breathed scripture. And when it became clear to me that it's simply impossible to maintain belief in eternal torment if one takes the scripture seriously, and I know those are strong words, but they're true words. When I realized that that's the case, I had to bend my knee in subjection to scripture, despite knowing what the cost would be. Um, thankfully, evangelicalism is changing a bit, and we're starting to become more welcoming of people who hold to alternative views of hell. Um, but nevertheless, it's still difficult. There are schools I can't teach at, churches I can't be members of, let alone teach at, and on and on it goes. But my goal is to, be, is to follow what God says, even if it leads me away from what man says. Great. Thanks, Chris. Um, appreciate those answers. So when it comes to eternal torment, it kind of hangs on three big verses. <laughs> so, we we can just, let's call them the big three. Yep. 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 So there are three verses that seem to point to eternalness. Um, and we will get into whether that's results or something else. Um, so the first one is Matthew 25, 31, um, 31 through 46, which is uh, the sheep and the goats. Would you mind kind of giving us an overview and how would a conditionalist interpret that? Because that's pretty much what um, traditionalists use as a cut and dry eternal punishment verse. <laughs> right. Well, so, and I would too. It very clearly teaches that the the fate awaiting the finally impenitent is eternal punishment. We conditionalists agree, at least most of us, there are some conditionalists who would understand the adjective Ionios, they're translated eternal differently, but that's not me, that's not rethinking hell, I suspect it's probably not you guys. Um, and many of your listeners, most of us conditionalists, so far as I can tell, affirm that Jesus is here warning of an eternal punishment. The question, however, is what is the nature of that eternal punishment? And I would argue that every single indicator in the text that might help us to answer that question points toward our view, conditional immortality and annihilationism. Um, one example of one of those indicators is in, in verse 41, where Jesus says that then, and in here he's giving a, a, a lengthy parable, um, that it's not, he's not saying what will happen, he's describing what's taking place in a scene, in a parable, but the parable is representative of what's going to happen on the day of judgment. And in the parable, the, the king says to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, when traditionalists hear eternal fire, they assume, and it is just an assumption, there's no reason to believe this, that the eternal fire is such because the bodies of the wicked will forever provide fuel to the fire. So the fire is constantly burning people's bodies, but never exhausting its fuel. Indeed, some of the early traditionalists, Minucius Felix, I think is what his name was, he, he said the, um, the fire of hell would melt away the flesh and simultaneously regenerate it throughout all eternity. And that's what traditionalists think of when they read this phrase eternal fire. But if we let Jesus tell us what he means by eternal fire, we can see that he's talking about something quite different. Because this isn't the first time in his in, in the Synoptic Gospels, let alone the first time in Matthew, that Jesus uses this phrase. He actually used it earlier in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, where he sets eternal fire up in parallel to Gehenna of fire, hell of fire. And what's important about this is that the Greek word Gehenna, or, or Gehenna as we often pronounce it in English, it's a Greek uh, transliteration and abbreviation of a longer Hebrew phrase, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. 
Now, before I explain the relevance of that, I want to be clear. Jesus is not here saying that this final punishment, or let me back up and say a little more softly. Jesus may not be saying that the punishment will literally be inflicted in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. But what he is doing is he's using the picture of the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom um, in its eschatological context in the Old Testament as a picture of what final punishment will be like. Um, the, the, phrase, the word, I think, that describes what's going on here is metonym or toponym. Yeah, toponym. So you're using a place name to evoke a picture of what that is going to take place um, in final punishment. And if we look at what the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom is in the Old Testament in terms of what it will be eschatologically, there's no clearer picture than, but this isn't the only picture, than in Jeremiah 7 verses uh, 30 and following, where Jeremiah says that one day it will no longer be called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter, because the dead bodies of God's slain enemies will be left exposed to be completely eaten up by scavenging beasts and birds. So this is a picture, the, the eschatological Gehenna in the Old Testament, and you see this in some of the intertestamental literature as well, is a picture of God's enemies being slain and their bodies, their remains being gotten rid of, completely consumed. That's the picture that Jesus is evoking when he uses the phrase eternal fire in Matthew 18, 8, and 9, which is why Jude uses the phrase in Jude 7 to describe the fire that came down from heaven in Genesis 19 and slew the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so eternal fire, according to Jesus and according to Jude, um, is a picture of God's divine fiery punishment by which he slays his enemies and burns up their bodies. So in Matthew 25, 41, that's what he's talking about. And so we already know what the eternal punishment probably is. It's probably going to be everlasting death inflicted by uh, possibly painful means. And indeed, and now this turns us to verse 46, the ones who will go away into eternal punishment are, by the very context of this verse, not going to receive eternal life. Well, what is the only possible everlasting punishment that does not include living forever? Yeah. Being dead forever, <laughs> right? So, so all of the details in this text, every single one of them, and by the way, the Greek word translated punishment, colossus here, has no connotation of conscious experience any more than the English word punishment does. We have all sorts of forms of punishment in modern day English, right? There's, there's, uh, there's positively inflicted ongoing punishment like torture, but there uh, or, or spanking or something like that. But then we also have what are called privative punishments, punishments that consist in the privation of something. So consider, for example, the punishment of a fine. The punishment, if you're if you're fined $250 for speeding or something like that, the punishment isn't in the time that it takes that to have that money uh, taken away from you. If it did, then five seconds after having your money taken away, they could just give it right back. You were punished by having it taken away, right? No, the punishment is no longer having that money. And the same is true of capital punishment. Even Augustine himself said this in his City of God, that governments around the world and through time, they measure the duration of capital punishment, not in the time that it takes to die, but in how long one remains dead. Um, so we put all these pieces together. Eternal fire is God's fire with which he kills his enemies. Eternal punishment is the antithesis to eternal life. And capital punishment is, uh, is measured in how long one remains dead. So if, as we believe, the resurrected lost will be killed a second time and never live again, 
then their punishment, death, is properly speaking everlasting. And that's what all of the indicators in this text seem to point to. Um, there's not a single bit of evidence in this text that suggests otherwise. Great. Good. Let's move on to the next one. It's Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Chris, give us your thoughts on this one. Before I do, am I going on too long on my answers? I mean, I, I want to. I think they're great. Just they're keep great. doing okay. what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Well, feel free to push back and ask questions and stuff. So the thing, before I get started on Revelation 14, 9 to 11, I need to stress the nature of John's vision here. We 21st century modern Westerners often struggle to understand what is going on here. Um, you see this, for example, in the work of dispensationalists like Hal Lindsey and you know people like that, where they think that when John, for example, in the book of Revelation sees these demons come up out of the abyss with tails like scorpions or whatever, that's John's attempt to describe Black Hawk helicopters. And he just didn't know what those were. And so he's doing his best <laughs> to try. No, this is baloney. It's stupid. The reality <laughs> is that all throughout scripture, this kind of prophetic visionary experience is one in which the future is foretold by means of symbols. So you can go back as far as Genesis chapter 40, when Joseph is in prison and he's interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. The cupbearer has a, a dream in which three buds blossom forth from a branch. And Joseph tells the cupbearer that those three blossoms or those three buds are three days after which the cupbearer will be restored to office. And the baker has a dream where he's got three baskets on his head and birds are eating out of it. And you can imagine if somebody today said, yeah, those three baskets represent the Trinity. What else could they mean? What, what else could be the significance of the number three? Well, they'd obviously be wrong. And the reason we know they'd be wrong is because Joseph tells the baker what those three baskets mean. He says the three baskets are three days after which the baker would be killed. And then in Genesis 41, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh in which seven healthy cows come up out of the Nile and then seven sick cows come up out of the Nile and eat the first seven. And you could imagine what somebody today might say, well, gosh, hmm, the number seven represents completeness. And so maybe this, I mean, the machinations would never end. But Joseph tells us what Pharaoh's dream means. Indeed, he tells Pharaoh, he says the seven the healthy cows are seven years of plenty, and the seven six cows are then seven years of famine. And it's all, all throughout the Bible. This is the way these prophetic visions work. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue with the different parts, the gold head and the silver chest or whatever they are. Uh, Daniel's beasts, of, uh, Daniel's dream of the four beasts in Daniel 7 and on and on it goes. That is the kind of vision that John is recording in the book of Revelation. This apocalyptic vision in which the future is indeed foretold but by means of symbols. And we cannot impose our own suspicions about what those symbols are onto the text. We have to let the text tell us what those symbols mean. So with all that sort of prolegomena out, the, out of the way, let me talk about this first passage in Revelation 14, 9 to 11. Um, traditionalists read this, and they rightly see eternal torment. Let me repeat that. Traditionalists, that is defenders of eternal torment, rightly see here eternal torment. And the reason I say that is because we see that John be hearing an angel who says they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. So the scene is one in which evidently the wicked, these beast worshipers, are suffering forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I fully affirm that that is what the text is describing. But remember what we just said. 
what tell what what this what matters is not what the imagery depicts what it portrays what matters is what that portrayal symbolizes well let's take a look at the different elements of the imagery here it's not just smoke rising from torment forever it's also drinking the wine of god's wrath in verse 9 it's also being tormented with fire and sulfur in verse 9 it's also or in verse 10 Actually, the drinking of God's wrath was in verse 10 as well. Um, the smoke of the torment going up forever and ever, that too is there in the symbolism. But here's what's fascinating. All three of those images that, that converge there to communicate the fate of these beast worshipers are used later in Revelation, particularly in Revelation 18 and 19. In Revelation 18, we see this, this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute with the words Mystery Babylon written on her forehead. And she is made to drink of God's wrath. She is tormented with fire. And at the beginning of chapter 19, a chorus cries out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, using Greek that is identical to what we read in Matthew or in uh, Revelation 14, 11. But when we look at what this symbolism means we see that an angel tells John what the fate of the real-life referent symbolized by that woman is. In Revelation 19, uh, 18, um, verse 21, the angel says, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. You see, all of these pictures that seem to us to depict ongoing everlasting torment, we're being told this is a picture symbolizing the destruction of the city represented by that harlot and the slaying of, of many of her inhabitants. And this isn't new to John. Um, this imagery was used in the same way. Drinking God's wrath often is used in the Old Testament to describe God's death-dealing destruction. Um, smoke rising forever is explicit in Isaiah 34.10, where Edom, it's said that her rivers will be turned into pitch, which is tar, burning tar. And the smoke, of, uh, the smoke will rise from, from Edom forever and ever. But nobody, not the most ardent of defenders of eternal torment, thinks that the city of Edom will literally belch smoke all throughout eternity. The point is that this picture of smoke rising forever, it's something like what we moderns think of when we see a, a mushroom cloud. It's a picture that evokes the concept of obliteration, devastation, destruction, death, annihilation. Um, so, yes, the vision here does portray the everlasting torment of beast worshipers. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does that symbolism mean? What does it mean in reality? And when we just let the text speak for itself and in the larger context of the rest of scripture, we see that nothing in the text supports the doctrine of eternal torment. It's, it's okay. as if John is using every imaginable image to, to, and converging them together to communicate as clearly as possible that the final fate of the lost is, is annihilation, death, destruction, rather than everlasting life and immortality. That's good. Yeah. And when we look at back at that passage about Edom, like we, we know where Edom is today and, it, and there's no smoke rising. <laughs> so. Well, to be fair, though, there are those who think that that is yet to be fulfilled in our future. But either way, again, yeah. it doesn't matter if it was fulfilled in the past, like we, the three of us probably think, or whether it's yet to be fulfilled in our future. Either way, nobody's nobody thinks that Edom is going to belch smoke out all into eternity. Nobody thinks that. But that is what the picture is. And yet, by the way, I should add that, the, that that scene in Isaiah 34 goes on to describe God lovingly caring for flora and fauna in Edom. Well, 
this is a this is a hyperbole to the extreme. There's no way Edom's streams could be turned into burning tar, and flora and fauna could flourish under God's loving care. Right? This is this is hyperbole and it's imagery, and what it's evoking is the promise that God's enemies will be destroyed. Good. All right. So the third big eternal text is Revelation 20 verses 10 to 15, um, and. Before we get into that, um, a, a lot of our viewers will will know that Ryan and I are preterists, partial preterists, orthodox. Thank you for saying preterists first. I don't yeah, like the phrase. I know, I know that I've watched many of your videos, Chris, and uh, I know how you don't like the uh, term partial preterist. You like preterist because... Because that's our view. But, but our I view. get why so many people feel yeah. the need to put the yeah. word partial there, yeah. And so they'll be familiar with uh, a lot of that lingo. We did like a 10-part eschatology series. And so we got a lot of that. But anyways, Revelation 20, um, Lake of Fire. What do you, what, give us your thoughts on that passage, Revelation 20, 10 to 15. Sure. So here again, we have a clear-cut depiction of everlasting torment. Period. We, we have to acknowledge that. And, and when universalists try to deny it by saying that the Greek phrase, um, ace to sionos ton ionon, unto the ages of the ages, it just means a really long time. That's foolish. John is going out of his way to e exhaust the, the, the way of saying that this is going on forever. It's not just under the ages. It's under the ages of the ages, right? It's, it's saying forever. Um, and traditionalists are therefore right to see the devil, the beast, and the false prophet tormented forever and ever here in the vision. But again, what's the question we're asking? We're asking, what does this symbolism mean in reality? Well, consider a couple of things. And, and by the way, I'll just say, um, I recently did a presentation in Rethinking Hell Live uh, in our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Rethinking Hell, with a co-author of an article that um, we wrote for an upcoming issue of the journal that Trinity Seminary puts out, the Journal of the Ecclesia Scholar Society. And we present an abbreviated form of our paper in which we argue that this scene, the scene we just discussed, and the rest of Revelation all teach conditional immortality. And so if people want to check out that recent episode of Rethinking Hell Live, that would be great. Um, and then check out the issue of Jess uh, when it comes out and where they can get even more detail. But in the limited amount of time that I've got with you guys here, I'll just touch on a couple of things. Firstly, um, what is often overlooked by defenders of eternal torment is that it's not just the devil, the beast, false, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet who are thrown into this lake of fire. It's also resurrected human beings. Um, that's in verses, you know, 12 through 15. Um, and we traditionalists assume, look, if they're thrown into the lake of fire, that means that must mean that they're going to be tormented forever and ever as well. And yeah, that's right. In the imagery, they are, if we're going to treat this as consistent. But it's not just them either. It's also in verse 14, death and Hades. Now, here's what's really important. Um, very often, traditionalists will say, yeah, but death and Hades aren't, con they're not conscious beings. And so when they're thrown into the lake of fire, their fate might be something else. Au contraire. It's true that in reality, death and Hades are not conscious beings, but in the imagery, they are. Just go back to Revelation chapter six, the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know what the fourth horseman is? It's a pale horse. This is in Revelation six, uh, eight, a pale horse and its rider's name was death, and Hades followed him. So in John's vision, death and Hades are like a horseman, a knight and his squire, right? They're conscious beings in the imagery. And as such, 
if we're going to say that when resurrected human beings are thrown into that lake of fire, that their fate is going to be the same as the devil to be some false prophet, we have no reason for saying otherwise of death in Hades. So when death and his squire are thrown in a lake of fire, we have to assume, if we're going to treat this consistently, that in the imagery, they too are tormented forever and ever. But again, the question we're asking is, what does that mean in reality? And we don't have to guess there. Because just a few verses later, in Revelation 21, verse 4, the one from the throne, God himself, says, Hathanatos uh, estai eti, death shall be no more. And it's not just um, John here in Revelation 21, uh, 4 saying that. It's also Paul saying the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The word destroyed there is the Greek word katargeo, which if you look it up in lexicons like Lonitas or even uh, BDAG, uh, Bauer, Donker, uh, Arnton, Gangrich, you'll see that katargeo means to cause to cease to happen. You see, the, the picture here is that, yes, death and a squire are thrown into the lake of fire and tormented forever and ever along with everything else in the vision that is thrown into the lake of fire. But what it symbolizes is literally the annihilation of death itself uh, and of the intermediate state of, of the underworld. Once God's people have been raised and once the wicked have been raised and then the wicked are destroyed and God's people have been rendered immortal, nobody will ever die again. Death will cease to exist as the existential threat that it is now. So number one, we could see that the picture of death and Hades being thrown at a lake of fire and tormented forever and ever is a symbol of their annihilation. And we should therefore suspect that that's probably what it means for the other things thrown into it as well. But this leads me to the second point I want to make, which is that that's exactly how John and God interpret the imagery. You see, when in verse 14, or sorry, verse 15, uh, no, it is verse 14. In verse 14, when John says that the lake of fire is the second death, and the Greek there is arguably a little bit ambiguous, but Revelation 21, 8 is not. That's very explicit that the lake of fire is the second death. They're not, they're not like giving you differing, you know, synonymous phrases. They're not saying that if you want to know what death is, it's the lake of fire. They're not saying if you want to know what death is, it's separation from God excluded from his people or anything. No, that's not what he's doing. He's using a very common method of interpretation that we saw in that we see in all those other examples I gave you earlier. Joseph in Genesis 40 and 41, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Even here in Revelation, we see it. Yeah, just a few chapters earlier, um, the angel tells John that the seven heads of the beast symbolize seven, or they literally the seven heads are seven kings, one, uh, five of which have fallen, a sixth now is, and the seventh is yet to come. So we see that this, this language of the lake of fire is the second death, is saying the lake of fire symbolizes the second death. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, what does second death mean? Well, as it turns out, that was a phrase that was not unfamiliar to John's readers. The phrase second death does not appear almost anywhere in Jewish literature of the day, with one exception the Aramaic Targums. The, the Targums were kind of like the Greek Septuagint in that they were loose translations of the Hebrew Old Testament, but instead of into Greek, which the Septuagint was a translation of, uh, the, the, Aramaic, the, the Targums were translations of the Old Testament into Hebrew or Aramaic. And the phrase second death appears in a number of places all throughout the Targums. In fact, in some of those places, it's used in conjunction with Gehenna, that, that lake of, that valley of slaughter that we talked about earlier. And everywhere where the phrase second death is used in the Targums, even where it's used in conjunction with Gehenna, 
It literally means dying a second time in the age to come and thereafter never participating in life ever again. So when John and God himself in Revelation 20, 14 and 21, 8, respectively, tell us the lake of fire is the second death, they're telling John's readers and us that second death you remember from the Targums, you know, that's dying a second time. That's what this lake of fire symbolizes. It's the furthest thing possible from the tradition, right? The, the tradition says the resurrected lost will remain alive forever, immortal. But John and God are saying, no, they're literally going to die a second time and forever. So again, we see that every, and by the way, this is just scratching the surface on the evidence from the book of Revelation, yeah. and even in this passage itself, that supports annihilationism. Um, but just in the details we've looked at, we've seen that the, the, the indicators are that the symbolism symbolizes annihilation and death, not everlasting torment. Yeah, I watched um, part of your, tuned in for part of your episode last night. I believe it was last night, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and it was really good. So um, you guys should go over to Rethinking Hell if you want more on the book of Revelation. You and um, I, who is your co-host? William. William, that's right. Um, you guys did a great job. On Thank you. I appreciate that. that. A little bit that I caught. Um, yeah, so th that was a great explanation, Chris, um, of all three of those, those passages. Um, Ryan, we should maybe go through some rapid fire objections. <laughs> Yeah, so Chris, I, I love the way that you started this out because you kind of just unfolded what people think after you die. And I think that's one place where a lot of people get hung up with uh, annihilationism. And so you you pass away and are you going to heaven? Are you going to uh, Hades, an eternal holding spot? You know, at some point, God is going to bring them back to life, so to speak, for judgment, and then are they dead again? You know, why would God bring them back just to die, just to kill them again? I think that's that's one place where people kind of have a little bit of a hang-up. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, so firstly, um, those uh, we would say that Haiti's intermediate state, whether it's consciously experienced or not, that the conditionless community is mixed. There's no correlation, no one-to-one -one correlation between annihilationism and soul sleep, for example. Um, there are those who believe in some sort of unconscious intermediate state, and then there are many who do not. Um, the either way, uh, we all believe that one day the wicked will rise from the dead and the saved, and we see that time in Hades as something like being like being in prison awaiting trial. Now, if you think of it as an as if you think of that as an analogy to what Hades is, to what the intermediate state is, imagine you've got a death row criminal. Um, or somebody who's been charged with a death, a, a, a capital crime, right? Like a serial murder or something like that. And he's in prison or jail awaiting um, his trial. Now imagine that a cellmate in the middle of the night uses a shiv and stabs this, this criminal or this, this, this alleged criminal while awaiting trial. Imagine that we have every reason to believe that this guy is going to be found guilty. All of the evidence, um, it, it's just insurmountable. There's simply no possibility that this guy isn't guilty. Yet, what do we do? Because we care about justice. The government, we the people, pour money into resuscitating and healing that guy, that alleged guy, the alleged criminal, so that he can stand fair trial. That's why God would raise the dead in order to judge them, 
and then sentence them to death if they're found guilty and then finally kill them again. It's because, um, number one, if they are conscious in an intermediate state, they're only half human. Right. They're they're dead. Their bodies are dead. God didn't design us to be disembodied souls that just happen sometimes to have a body. Right. We're designed. You go look at the creation of Adam in Genesis 2. And what do you see? God breathed life into a body of dust. And what does Adam thereby become? A living being, a nefesh chaya. So a living being, a living human being is not just a disembodied soul. It's also a, a living body. And if you um, have somebody awaiting trial in the intermediate state who's half human, you need to raise that person in order to fairly try them. Now, of course, God is a perfect judge, and he already knows whether or not the person is guilty, but trials aren't only about um, the judge and the uh, defendant. They're also about witnesses getting to testify, uh, and not just because, uh, you know, so that in order to bring evidence, but because the witnesses deserve their, their day in court. You know, who That's else deserves point. their day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the the victims deserve their day in court. Yeah. Um, so so the reason why God would raise the dead, uh, the dead lost, only to sentence them to death and kill them again, is precisely because that was what is required in order for justice to properly be done. And what do we believe that God is? Uh, among other things, He's a God of justice. So hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, it's always interesting in that line of thinking that they've in a sense already been judged if they're not in heaven, if they're in Hades or an intermediate holding place or wherever you put them at that point, it seems like in God's way of looking at it, he he already knows the destination at that point. And, you know, if they're not in heaven, they're someplace else. Um, Some, some people, I think when you get into your universal reconciliation, start kind of seeing second chances, third chances being given. Do you see any of that within those that take a annihilation viewpoint? Or would you just, if they, if they went there at all, you just put them in the universal reconciliation camp? Uh, No, universal is universal reconciliation does require postmortem repentance. um, But not everybody who believes in postmortem repentance is a universalist. Um, I don't believe in postmortem repentance. Uh, I don't think that there will be any opportunities after death to repent and express saving faith in Christ. Um, And I don't see that taught anywhere or even alluded to anywhere in scripture. But I also struggle to find any texts that clearly rule it out. And so while I don't believe it will happen, I have respect for some, the, 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 the relatively small number of conditionalists that I know who do think that there will be an opportunity to repent and express saving faith after resurrection, if not in the intermediate state, um, provided that they think some will decline that offer and, and ultimately be annihilated. They are, by definition, conditionalists, not yeah. uh, universalists. Good. Yeah. Um, another, I guess this is kind of a softball objection, but it's one that I hear a lot. They're all softballs. It's I know. <laughs> we went a little easy on you, mainly because this might be the first time that some of our audience has heard about conditionalism. So we want to start at a ground level and build That's up. That's wise. So, yeah. Um, so Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults hold the conditional immortality. So does that make conditional immortality questionable as a belief? <laughs> no, for at least two reasons. Um, and we could probably pile on a host of other reasons as well. But the two that I think are most important are that number one, The groups that you're talking about, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christadelphians, both of which are heretics, uh, but also groups that are legitimately considered evangelical by authorities like the Seventh-day Adventists and the Advent Christians, those groups 
did not come up with annihilationism on their own. They got annihilationism from Christians. Um, this is something I write about in my contribution to our second book, Consuming Passion, which you mentioned earlier. If you look at the history of the 19th century in America, um, you see that early in that century, there were a number of otherwise very orthodox conservative Christians who, who embraced this view and either felt compelled to leave or were compelled to leave their communities of faith. And many of them streamed to what seemed like the only place where they were welcome. And that was what was called the, the Millerite movement or, or the Campbellite movement, the, the restoration movement of that 19th century. And that movement is certainly questionable in some ways. But it wasn't heretical in and of itself. But one of the things that happened is that various branches sort of branched out from that movement, and they include those movement movements I mentioned earlier, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Advent Christians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Christadelphians. So they all got their view of annihilationism from Christians, not the other way around. And so it would be foolish, the height of foolishness, to say that because the, it's those groups hold it, therefore it would it's heresy. The second reason why it doesn't make it heresy is because her her heretical groups also believe in eternal torment. The Westboro Baptist Church teaches um, eternal torment. The uh, or Islam teaches eternal torment. Uh, the Appalachian snake wranglers who think that they can be bitten by venomous snakes and not killed, they teach eternal torment and on and on it goes. Um, heretics exist on all three sides of the hell debate. And yet, we don't say that because some of them teach eternal torment, therefore eternal torment's heresy. So why would we do the same thing with the other two views? The reality is, is that every false system of belief has elements of truth within it. If they didn't, we wouldn't, nobody would follow them. We're, we're, we're pretty stupid as human beings and we're pretty wicked, but we're not so stupid and so wicked that we will blindly follow somebody that doesn't have even a shred, even a morsel of truth. Satan wraps a whole lot of deceitful dung around little, little nuggets of beauty and of truth. And yes, Jehovah's Witnesses have a whole lot of dung. <laughs> um, for that matter, so do the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, and of course, the Christadelphians and on and on. But so too do the Westboro Baptist Church, the Snake Wranglers and Islam. Um, but you know what Jehovah's Witnesses also believe in? The inerrancy of scripture. You know what um, uh, 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 Westboro Baptist Church believes, rightly, that homosexuality is sin. So um, on it goes. Every one of these systems has a lot of falsehood built around a little bit of truth. And if some of that little bit of truth includes our view of hell, that's fine, especially since they got it from Christians to begin with. Yeah, that's good. Um, I feel a lot of times that people kind of arrive at this view because they can't stomach the nature of God with tormenting people forever. Can you speak to that? And then maybe also just uh, kind of touch on maybe some of your reasons you mentioned, you know, you kind of moved from one position to the other. What, what are some of those reasons that you kind of came over to this view? Well, let me, let me answer those in reverse order. Um, so in the case of myself, as I explained, everything within me that could possibly be called emotional made me want to continue to believe in the doctrine of eternal torment and the true and the same mm -hmm. is true right now i wish i could i i plead with people please help me to believe in eternal torment again it'd be so much easier for me as a conservative reformed christian <laughs> right um the reason i ended up bending my knee to scripture is precisely because i deem scripture as the authority not my emotions and by the way that's that's also true of most conditionalists um mm -hmm. there are some 
authors who have quoted uh, John Stott out of context. John Stott, for those listeners that may not be familiar, um, he was at one time called the Pope of Evangelicalism. He was he remains uh, the, the object of a, a tremendous amount of respect and admiration by evangelicals around the world. And yet, in his debate book, and I think it was 1982 with the liberal David Edwards, he came out and said that we should consider annihilationism to be a, uh, a, a possible understanding of scripture. And defenders of eternal torment have sometimes quoted him, but removed some of what he said and replaced it with an ellipsis, those three little dots that indicate that we're omitting some things. And so what they depict John Stott as saying is, I can't imagine, I don't know how anybody believes in eternal torment without cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. And then they insert a little bit of ellipsis, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then they quote John Stott continuing saying, we should consider uh, the possibility that scripture teaches annihilationism. But you know what John Stott said <laughs> in the place where those two, those three dots have been um, put in place of his actual words. He says, but my emotions are an untrustworthy guide to truth. They're fluctuating, they're unreliable. And ultimately, I have to bend my knee to scripture. And that is the view that can all we conditionalists all have. We believe what we believe because we think we see it clearly taught by scripture. Yeah. Now, going back to the first question, what about those who seem to have been attracted to this view because of an emotional reaction to the doctrine of eternal torment? Almost like God is more graceful doing it this way. You know, I think that's the, the way it flushes out sometimes. That's right. And, and I, I, I can, I suppose, sympathize, that, sympathize with that a little, except that, like I said, for me, um, the prospect of annihilation is far more fearful. And by the way, I'm not alone. Um, if you go read Augustine, if you go read the first century historian Plutarch, if you go read the, 19, or the 20th century agnostic poet uh, Philip Larkin in his poem Albad, and on and on it goes, you'll see that humankind has a rich, thriving history of people who are more terrified of ceasing to be than they are living forever in misery. And that might seem weird to some of you, but the fact is that's how some of us feel. Um, but yes, there are some who think that it would be more merciful or more consistent with the love of God to yeah. destroy the finally wicked rather than immortalize them so they can live forever in misery. But here's the thing. Let's say for the sake of argument that conditional immortality and annihilationism are true and that it's what scripture teaches. Isn't it conceivable that humankind, because we bear the imago dei, the image of God, isn't it, isn't it plausible that because we have God's law written on our hearts, isn't it plausible that because we, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an innate sense of justice and morality that we all have, even if, we, even if everybody is twisted and distorted in our view of morality and justice and so forth, if all of that's true, isn't it at least conceivable that some people rightly react negatively in terms of emotions to the doctrine of eternal torment. Isn't it at least possible that it is indeed unjust? And that's why some of God's divine, or God's image bearers react that way. Well, th think about when God is talking to Abram at the Oaks of Mamre, just before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Abraham plead with God saying? Will not the God of just, you know, will not God do what's right, what's just? He even gets God to say, if there's just five righteous people in that town, I won't, I won't obliterate them. So we have Abram himself appealing to the justice of God and saying, if you do this thing over here, that would be wrong. And God respects that. He doesn't condemn Abram for thinking that way. 
So all I'm proposing is that maybe, just maybe, I'm the hard-hearted, stubborn one, and my other fellow conditionalists who were drawn to this view in part because it seemed to be more consistent with the love and justice of God, maybe it was the whole, maybe it was their God-given sense of justice morality that led them there. But I'll tell you what, with to, to a man, they all embrace this view not because they initially hoped it to be true because of their emotional reactions, but because when they went to scripture hoping to find something other than the doctrine of eternal torment there, they found out what scripture really teaches. And they embraced it because scripture teaches it. And it just so happens that it conforms to um, or is consistent with what they perceive to be their God-given sense of morality and justice. Um, so no matter how you slice it, this is not a liberal or progressive view. Um, no matter how you slice it, this is a view that people embrace because it's taught clearly by scripture. It just happens that some of them are attracted to it to begin with because of their emotions. Yeah. yeah. Chris, this has been great. I really appreciate the way you've broken it down. You can tell you've gotten a lot of hours into this because <laughs> everything is very succinct and to yeah. the point. Um, we're winding down. I think we've gotten a great overview of it. Is there anything else you would like to convey or say that you can't just, you know, leave undone before we put a finish to this film? Um, I'll say two things, I guess, uh, in, in parting, or, or yeah, two things. Number one, um, this is, this is going to sound a little um, hyperbolic, but it's not. Um, the reason why I finally bent my knee in subjection to scripture and embraced this view is because I discovered that with virtually no exception, Every single proof text historically cited in support of the doctrine of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to teach the doctrines of conditional immortality and annihilationism. So it's not just that we conditionalists have some passages that we have to reconcile with our view. No, it's that all of the texts the doctrine the, the believers in eternal torment cite actually prove our view. Um, not just Mark, uh, or not just Matthew twenty five, Revelation fourteen, and Revelation twenty, but Math, but Mark nine forty three to forty eight, Second Thessalonians one eight and nine, yep. and on and on it goes. Uh, the That's only what except- won me over was going through all those verses and mm-hmm. you know con- you know consistently going. Wait a minute, this sounds more like that than this. And so when, once you do that three or four times in a row, you start kind of opening your eyes to that possibility. I guess. That's right. That's exactly right. And and so for those listeners who remain a bit skeptical uh, and viewers, um, that's okay. I don't expect anybody to um, change their mind because of one persuasive blabbermouth like me. Um, <laughs> I, I want them to dive into the scriptures and, and study for themselves. But what I am asking people to do when they turn to those scriptures is take your glasses off for a minute, the glasses that you've put on, maybe even not without knowing right. it, the, the lenses formed by your upbringing in the church and by the surrounding culture and so on and so forth, and, and, and do the hard work of scratching beneath the surface and seeing what these texts really say, and you might just discover what we've discovered. The only other thing I'll say is that hopefully, if I've made no, nothing else clear in my time with you today, <laughs> hopefully what I've made clear is that those of us who hold to this view very often do so because we're every bit as firmly committed to the essentials of the faith and to the authority of scripture as every, as any other eternal yeah. torment believing Christian. Mm-hmm. And so my plea to those of you viewers who are watching, who are not yet convinced and who have been reluctant to fellowship with and, yeah. and, and minister with people like me, reconsider your, your, your disfellowship from, from us yeah. Yeah. because there's no essentials of the faith that this view denies or logically denies. Um, I am on, I've debated Unitarians in public and in print. I've, I, I represent 
Calvinism and debate with brothers like Leighton Flowers and so forth. I, 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 I debate. I just debated a Roman Catholic on sola scriptura. I debate. I, I've debated um, hyperpreterists who believe that all prophecy has been fulfilled in the past and that there will be no resurrection of the dead. And so, I'm every bit as much a staunch defender of the essentials of the faith as any defender of eternal torment. Why not fellowship with and minister alongside yeah. me? Because I'll tell you what, the world is dying. And it desperately needs its Messiah. And if defenders of eternal torment and I can't lock, uh, stand aside one another, arm in arm, taking the gospel to the world that so desperately needs it, then I think, and, and if that's because defenders of eternal torment aren't comfortable fellowshipping with me and ministering with me, I think that grieves God's heart. And I think it stymies our God-given mission to reach the world. So those will be yeah. the last things I so say. So we'll take the first step there. Neither Matt nor I are reformed. And so we'll just say we still love you, brother. Thanks I appreciate for that. You <laughs> I appreciate that. So Chris, uh, mind telling people where they can, uh, where they can check out uh, some of your videos, follow you, um, so let them know where they can keep up with you. So the, the website is rethinkinghell.com. We're always trying to improve it, but it, it, it's got a lot of blog articles and podcast episodes, which by the way, people can find in iTunes and other podcatchers as well, Spotify, I think. Excuse me. Um, we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash rethinkinghell where we put up our conference videos sometime after our conferences are over. We have a every other week live stream that we do. Um, I, I would encourage people to check out those two links above all others. If people are interested in my thoughts on topics other than hell, I do my own YouTube show called Theopologetics, which is a combination of the words theology and apologetics. It's just do it, go to youtube.com slash theopologetics and they can find me live streaming on the alternate Mondays, the ones where I'm not live streaming at Rethinking Hell. Um, and I'm super accessible. People can befriend me on Facebook and, and um, I'm quick to respond over messenger and over email. Chris Date at rethinkinghell.com is where people can email me if they have questions or pushback. Um, and I've got an academia.edu profile where I've got my journal articles on the topic published. Um, or I mean, they're, they're published in journals, but I've got them linked to in my um in my academia profile. So those are a few places and and if and there are others too, but if people reach out to me in one of those means I just mentioned, I'll, I'll give them more links. Great, great, great. Well, Matt, thank you for framing this conversation today. Chris, thank you so much for being part of our Expedition 44 YouTube channel and podcast. And thank you to all of our faithful watchers and listeners. May God bless you and keep you.